Well, good day and welcome to another episode here of the Disaster Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Davis, the pod medic, and we've got another earthquake-related update for you. Um, this is uh, something we've been wanting to cover ever since the earthquake was reported in Turkey and Syria. Um, of course, those of you that are in the disaster community have probably been following the response there. And um, the death toll at the time of this recording was over 20,000 Um which is still in likely to increase because they aren't near getting close to being finished um, digging through the rubble yet. So it's going to be, I'm, I'm sorry to say, much higher than that. But we are going to talk a little bit about structural integrity, and we'll cover that in just a second. But first, I want to bring in my co-host, Sam Bradley. Hey, Sam. Hey, Jamie. I hear you've had a busy day. Uh, it's been, I've been talking nonstop for like the last three hours, so it should be fun to see if my voice holds out here tonight. Well, we got Dan, so all we have to do is <laughs> wind him up and let him go, and, and we won't have to say anything. But we have Dan Zaner with us tonight. Um, Hello. Structural expert. You want to reintroduce yourself, Dan? I can't believe there's anybody in this group that hasn't heard you. <laughs> yeah, I kind of becoming part of the furniture around here, aren't I? Um, yeah, uh, Dan Zayner from the, the Natural Hazards Engineering Research Infrastructure, uh, known henceforth as NARI, so we don't have to say that acronym too often. Um, and uh, yeah, happy to happy to be here. Um, not so not so jazzed to be needing to talk about the topic we're talking about, but uh, but happy to be with you guys. Well, you you sent us some files, which unfortunately I didn't see until a few minutes ago. Jamie had a chance to look over them, but it sounds like there's some pretty interesting stuff in there. So I'm just going to give it to you and let you tell us about it. Oh boy, yeah. So basically, what we what I've sent over, and, and uh, we'll find a way to to link it to uh, folks who are listening in, in various show notes and things of that sort. Um, is evidence of the amazing community of scientists, engineers, and and researchers that we have in, in the natural hazards uh, community. So, um, what happens after an event like this is scientists all over the world who are part of our our network get to work. Um, there's ways of coordinating them, uh, and two of the main ones are uh, the structural extreme events reconnaissance. Uh, Group or STEER and the Geotechnical Extreme Events Reconnaissance Team or GEAR. And those guys, uh, that's a couple of the reports that I, I sent off were from, uh, from STEER and GEAR, have already started to do analysis of what happened uh, from a geotechnical standpoint and how it affects the built environment from a structural standpoint. Um, yeah, so, so some of the very uh, interesting things that came out of there, we were talking a little bit. Uh, before we started recording was many of the structures that have collapsed, especially uh, kind of medium and high-rise structures, um, were of Chinese design and manufacturing. That's against the Chinese. We love them. Um, however, the, the way these structures were designed and constructed uh, involved a very particular way of bracing uh, a structure. So it's a steel braced frame structure. So uh, instead of your your house is a wooden framed structure, this structure is made out of steel, and the bracing in between 
the stories, especially in the, the medium stories, um, you can think of them like um, making triangles. So instead of, you know, you got the whole rest of the thing is made up of squares and rectangles. If you make a triangle in between those members, the, the beams, the columns, that makes the structure stronger. It keeps it from um, lateral uh, movement and, and resists lateral loading. That's what braces are for. So the braces in these structures are just steel tubes. So just think of a think of a tube, uh, kind of like a wrapping paper tube or something like that, but made out of steel and it's square cross section. Those kinds of tubes don't do anything for you in an earthquake, as we have seen. All they do is crumple like a soda can. So what is uh, in seismic design codes like we have uh, here in, in the, the western edge of the United States and, and other places, um, and even in Turkey, they've, they've started to incorporate some of these things, just not quick enough, um, are things called uh, BRBs or um, buckling restrained braces. And these little guys are essential um, in keeping a building uh, stand withstanding, uh, um, especially during an earthquake. And so what they are is it's a steel core encased in concrete. And the idea is to continuously support that core and keep it from buckling when it's compressed along its axis. So uh, to keep it from getting crushed like a soda can, so to speak. So those are kind of some of the, some of the biggest things I saw in looking at the the data that has come out so far. That's amazing. Well, you know, I'm not, I'm asking things I don't know, and I don't know if you guys know, but <clears throat> given that area of Turkey and Syria, were they ever expecting, or did they perceive they could have an earthquake that size? Oh yeah, they've had many this size before. <laughs> Uh, of similar of similar size, actually, one in 2020 uh, was was very near uh, this level of magnitude. Uh, you can look back um, to some great reports again by by Steer and and Gear uh, partners uh, on on the Design Safe uh, Data Data Depot, um, and just to the northeast uh, of where this earthquake took place back in 2020, there was a magnitude 6.8, um, and they saw very very similar things with very similar types of, of buildings and and it's just a it's a it's a shame that and and even even before that there's there's been some articles coming out from uh, great reporting from Time magazine about uh, earthquake in 1999 killed 17,000 people in Turkey. They they established a government agency to to help cope with these natural disasters, but um, just. Didn't uh, didn't get the buildings there up to up to code in in time for for this one. So they definitely saw it coming. It's a size it's a seismically active area. So what does it take to retrofit uh, an existing building to the standard where it might actually stand? It takes people really caring about it um, at the end of the day and 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 putting their money where their mouth is. It's not an in, inexpensive um, endeavor. Um, you know, there's. Turkey apparently has has a building code that you know, requires uh, buildings using uh, you know, ductile concrete that's supposed to be flexible in the event of an earthquake. Um, but uh, a, a structural engineer um, from uh, an organization called Miyamoto International um, 
they they estimate that only one in ten buildings in the country actually meet that standard. They often reuse old buildings rather than um, raising these buildings and building a new one to meet new standards. Um, so you can you can retrofit it. It's it's more cost effective than constructing a building from scratch, but uh, it's it's difficult to make private buildings do that. Uh, it's 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 costly. It's uh, uh, this uh, one citation is it's. 10 to 15 percent of the replacement cost uh, to retrofit. Uh, so you can retrofit eight buildings for the price of building a new one, but se seismic retrofitting, it doesn't add anything to the market value. So it's not um, a lot of times it's just not something that people want to spend spend money on. Um, and, and, and unfortunately, this is the result. Yeah. Um, no, that's OK. I have a question, Dan. Oh, yeah, Jenny. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, as I'm looking through one of the um, Turkey earthquake report PDFs you sent my way, looking at the um, what I'm interpreting is an interstory drift, which is, I guess, the, 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 the distance, the, the story above the one below shifts above it yeah. before it comes down, which I think is what causes that pancaking effect during a high-rise collapse, correct? Mm. Yes. Um, yeah, they, they, they either just pancake when um when the drift happens extensively on the lower stories essentially like the lower story just gets knocked out from underneath the building the building just falls down right on top of it um or if you get a, a more gradual interstory drift over the course of a number of stories you kind of have it slumped over like a deck of cards yeah and, and it, there's a couple of there's a so we're going to link to these pdfs but there's a couple of very dramatic tables and um figures that are illustrated in there that show the level of drift between stories mm -hmm. um and makes it very clear how quickly one of these buildings would come down because the stories just shift right out from under each other yeah it's 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 really unsettling just how stark uh some of these really effective analyses are and, and um the the team that puts these together has, has got the the miles on the odometer, so to speak, to to show. I mean, this is why we do these large scale tests that you've heard me talk about uh, over the years at Nary is is to validate these numerical models that you're seeing in these reports against real buildings, so that we can have a high level of confidence that in a real scenario, a real building would act a lot like these numerical models that you're that you're seeing. Well. <laughs> Unfortunately, most of these buildings will never be retrofit because they no longer exist. Um, yes. And I, I guess getting back to what you were saying about that was the fact that under, I understand Turkey has had a lot of economic issues. So the rest. Yeah, that's the that's the really unfortunate part of this is that it's it's not just a one solution to this. It's a multifaceted, extremely complex problem with with social, with political, with environmental, with the economical, with religious, all of the factors are involved in, in this uh, in this, this scenario. It's, it's really a perfect storm. Well, and just considering what it will take once they get all the bodies recovered in that, just mm -hmm. to get rid of all that rubble, where do they go with it? How do they remove it? Just to even yeah. consider rebuilding. Yes, and 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 really, you know, it, 
it starts with the you know the human element of um help helping the the folks who are who are still remaining to 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 know their the people who are in charge of of that reconstruction act uh, care about their livelihood care about their um their safety by following building codes that they already have they they've already put the work in place for that um they just they there is a, a need to to follow through and and I don't have an answer for how they're going to do that but um but you know there's um a growing body of of research of of just how how complex this is uh, this is why we have a lot of great social scientists like uh, like Lori Peak and her team at, at Converge looking into things like this uh, when when events happen of the social aspect of of things like this and and how uh, a community bounces back and how quickly and and uh what the effect is of uh of events like this on the regional uh psyche and, and relationships and uh, things like that so it's a it's a really complex problem that is going to need it's going to be a long long road back to recovery and and needs careful consideration along the way of all all the factors, and especially making sure that the business the the building codes that they've already got are are followed. Indeed, yeah. You mentioned Laurie, and she's somebody I'd really like to get on the show. If you have a new she's, hard, <laughs> she's a hard lady to pin down, but you can, yeah, you can name can drop have... me anytime you like. Uh, she's uh, she's absolutely excellent. Um, that. Uh, yeah, she's she's does such great work, and and uh, Tracy Kajuski Korea as well, who who heads up uh, the Steer uh, team. Both are just um, really really excellent uh, in that intersection between you know, human beings and and the built environment. Like what happens to us as people when events like this happen, and that how do how do we as people and and families and communities recover along with the the infrastructure and the built environment. Yeah, because right now I've been watching MSNBC all day just because it's there. And, you know, it's it's obvious that, you know, the people, the survivors, are throwing a lot of blame on why didn't the government make these better? Why didn't they make them up to standard? Well, that's a big question nobody can answer. But, you know, there's yeah. going to be a lot of heat coming from, I don't know how it works over there, but... Um, they're not happy, clearly, because so many of them have lost people and are still losing yeah. people. And fortunately, there's still stories of recovery, which is amazing to me at this point, that there could be. But I guess if you get yeah. in the right void space, you know, I guess it could happen. So, but I'd love to, to talk more about the sociological aspect of this, and uh, hopefully we can get somebody to talk about that. So, Dan, what's yeah. Some, somewhere that um, that you can go to kind of keep your finger on the pulse, and, and I'm, I, I know you guys are aware of this. Um, we have a Slack channel on on Design Safe, so if you go to designsafe-ci.org um, and the uh, community tab there, um, you can for free. It's public. It's open. Uh, we have a, a Slack community, and there is a channel for the 2023 Turkey earthquakes where we've got um, folks who are on the ground there. Um, and as soon as it's safe for them to do so, are going to be uh, bringing in, you know, their 
ways of gathering the data. Um, we've got a guy from Istanbul who said, yep, I'm going to visit there after the emergency operations are completed and, and interested in especially non-engineered structures, of which there are many in that area, you know, stone and mud houses, historical structures. I mean, this is a historically significant area that's been inhabited by humans for a long time. Uh, so it's going to be really interesting to see uh, see there. Um, and we have someone in that channel from Uzbekistan who's you know, just five hours away from the site and is looking to be uh, deployed when it's safe uh, and, and expedient to do so. So we've got people who are in the area looking for the opportunity to to go and, and do that reconnaissance when, when, when they're able to. Wow. Yeah, I'll have to do that. That sounds interesting. Um, my mind just isn't working tonight. Um, one of the, oh, one I, of the I have a I, question if you don't have something immediately ahead. leaping to mind, Sam. Um, I got it. So, Dan, when, when you said people are ready to go in, um, what are the next steps um, for your steer and, and gear com- community um, when something like this happens? What, walk us through that process of how they start gathering information. Yeah, um, they have a very rigorous process. Um, starting with uh, they would call a, a virtual assessment structural team or VAST. Um, and so they will assemble any any available data that's out there um, and put together um, this preliminary virtual reconnaissance report of which we've uh, sent out a few of those over the years. Um, and then that will inform uh, possibly escalating it to a full uh, field assessment structural team on a fast and then that will begin mobilizing individuals um, in the affected area this is being an international one quite a bit different than if we had a hurricane in florida um, it's it's much more complex to send people over to turkey or syria as one could imagine um, than it is to uh, you know a hurricane in the united states but um yeah that's the that's the process so is is uh doing virtual assessments with anything we can find pictures video twitter feeds um any any available data uh that's on local seismic networks uh, of which there are a few uh from from turkey and from china and a couple other uh, countries have some sensors in the area um so they'll start with that and then uh we'll begin the the process of assessing if it's necessary or even possible uh, to to send in, in uh, people in physically, uh, which who knows with uh, the climate there, uh, politically and <laughs> militarily, and all the all the stuff going on. Because I mean, you're on the border of of Turkey and Syria, which is a, a, a very volatile place uh, to be. So we'll see. We'll see what the if, if how that goes down, uh, but that that would be the process. Is is first the the virtual assessment, um, and then uh, they, would, they would send a field assessment team and get their reports um, if if possible. But uh, in this case, I don't hold out a whole lot of hope for anybody outside the couple of folks who are in our network already who are in the region and uh, have equipment available, uh, which it sounds like there's there's at least a couple. So. Uh, that would be that would be the next uh, next piece. Well, on the other hand, given that they're accepting so much help from everybody, including two USARs from the United States, uh, they might be a little more open to whatever you're doing that can assist them in the future. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who knows? 
Gover governments can be a fickle thing at times. Um, yeah. Yes. Well, the, the, the point that escaped me earlier was I, I remembered seeing something about a, a castle that was a couple thousand years old. That oh, yeah. was virtually destroyed. And that's sad because I love that old architecture. But mm -hmm. is there any kind of building that currently exists, maybe in other countries, that would withstand a 7.5? And also, tagged onto that, since there was a second 7.5, which is kind of wow. Yeah. And, and and a number of other aftershocks, you know, how do, how much effect does that have on, I mean, not, not getting a sense of what it looked like originally when it fell down, and how much of it was due to these aftershocks when the structures were already weakened? Hmm. Yeah, it's it's a it's a very complex problem, and, and one of those reports um, was talking about that that very thing. Um, I'm not sure I have an ex, ex, extremely complete answer to this, but one one of them is things like those uh, buckling restraint braces that I mentioned, and and using really good ones. Um, but even even then, it, it comes down to okay, you know, there are places like. Uh, San Francisco Bay Area comes to mind, the LA area comes to mind, um, that have incorporated some of those seismically resilient buildings. And, and we have a fault line, the San Andreas Fault uh, in, in the United States, has a, a similar uh, mechanism to the one in Turkey, a, a slip strike fault that you know we've, we've been updating the seismic uh, section of the design code in the United States to, to mitigate. And, and we've been doing doing testing actually um, at uh, UC San Diego, they're they're about to test a 10-story building that is designed to withstand a magnitude nine earthquake. Um, wow. And it is. Yeah, they, on the they table have the right giant. Now. They have the giant shake table, right? The the the, oh, yeah. the one that you can build a building on and then shake it down. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, they have. I mean, it's it's. <laughs> they currently have a 10-story building at full scale on the test stand right now, and they're just doing instrumentation. Um, and they're. Uh, you know, knock on wood, getting getting ready to test that thing in early March um, for for a couple of months. Um, yeah, and and part of their part of their test protocol is uh, to subject it to the ground motion from the Northridge earthquake, uh, and and get it all the way up to uh, magnitude nine. Ah, uh, yes, I remember it well. Northridge earthquake, uh, former Californian here. Jamie, question. Um, no, I, I just that was an old question I dropped in, but I, I will continue the, the thought of, um, you know, when we have these types of facilities in the United States and we, we enact new building codes, but that, that it does take time to apply the lessons learned. Time. Yeah, yeah, it takes a very long time, um, which is why, uh, you know, uh, we have international partners as well who are, are sometimes some ways in some areas ahead of us uh, are partners in Japan. Uh, they have a fantastic facility called E-Defense that has a shake table that I believe is actually larger than the uh, shake table at San Diego, but it's inside, so you can't build quite as high there. Um, but they have fantastic state-of-the-art facilities and, and, and very robust uh, seismic design codes in Japan for valid reasons. There's a lot, a lot of earthquakes in Japan. Um, 
And so, uh, yeah, learning learning from the international community as well is, is one way to sometimes uh, be able to incorporate things a little a little quicker. But yeah, the uh, the 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 cycle from fundament from field assessment to fundamental research to design testing to code adoption to then actually constructing things to that code. I mean, it's maybe a decades long process sometimes. So here's a you're probably going to go, what the hell is she talking about? But if there was a an eight-point quake on the San Andreas somewhere uh -huh. near San Francisco, how many buildings do you think would be in the condition that they need to be to survive? Oh, boy. I don't know that I can give an accurate answer to that, but I'm sure somebody can. <laughs> yeah, it'd be interesting to know yeah. because, you know, it's like that exists, but how many of those structures would yes. Actually, survive. I would hazard a guess there's a data set already on Design Safe where someone has done that regional scale simulation. It wouldn't surprise me. Uh, I don't know offhand, but I'm fairly confident someone has that answer yeah. or, or, or is looking this, into it. And the well, same thing like in Japan or China. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. no, that's a big question. No, I think, I think it's, I, and I think it's like, you know, like, for fire service, we do pre-plans for major structures in our areas to, to make sure we understand how to attack given situations in, in, in large buildings and things like that. The same thing is true for emergency managers in areas that are prone to earthquake or tornado or hurricane or whatever, that they probably have a good idea of what the, what the structural integrity is for their communities in a given strength storm or earthquake or whatever. Um, and like you said, Dan, I mean, NARI is a very transparent group of organizations that make sure that everything is right there for everybody to grab. So I'm sure somebody could jump on that Slack channel and find out an answer to that. Yeah, and there's there's a great uh, there's another channel in there that is specifically for earthquake engineering and another for uh, for structural engineering. And so you know, if you've got a question for a, an actual honest to goodness structural engineer, uh, got a pretty good community there. Uh, to to ask of like you know, what, where where would I find that answer? Has anybody answered that before? Um, af after you do your yeah you know, do your do do your due diligence of, uh, of of searching the data sets first, but uh, if you don't find anything, um, you know there's there's a I, I'm just looking now at the the amount of people on this. There's almost uh, almost a hundred people on the structural channel uh, for earthquakes uh, for earthquake folks. There's a geotechnical channel. I've got eighty people on there. Um, so plenty of, plenty of folks you can, who really know their stuff, uh, who can, who can answer some of those, those questions. Yeah. And I'll bet they're chatting their faces off there, <laughs> you know, looking at this, they uh, you sure know, are. I, I, I don't know that anybody knows the answer to this yet either, other than the people who really study earthquakes, but you know, the San Andreas has to be right. I think it has been for as long as I lived mm -hmm. there for that big one. Does anybody have any idea what that? It, they can't. I mean, there's, there's not at least as far as I know. Anyway, there's not an accurate way to say, oh, it's going to happen in 20 days or 100 years. There is just a well, it's overdue. <laughs> um, you know, same, same for the the Cascadia subduction zone up here in the Pacific Northwest. It's like, well, the last time this happened was 150 years ago or something like that. And typically, it has happened every hundred years or whatever the period 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 is. I can't remember off the top of my head, but um, essentially, 
that's overdue as well. It could be tomorrow. It could be 50 years from now. We don't know. Well, and, and Dr. Joe always talks about the new, new Madrid fault, um, which was oh, yeah. down through the Mississippi, lower Mississippi Valley. Um, and that, that had a major earthquake back in what the early 1800s that um, yeah. caused significant damage. And there weren't that many people there at the time. So imagine what it would be like today. Um, so they, yeah. yeah, they're overdue, they're overdue as well. So <laughs> yeah, we got, we got, a, we got, a, we got a few, a few um, pretty interesting seismic systems that are, that, who knows? I mean, we've got the mega volcano under Yellowstone that's overdue as well. Um, so yeah, uh, you could well, you could get into a, into the tinfoil hat syndrome real quick if you're, if you're a, <laughs> a hazard engineer for any any length of time. Well, you know, when Arizona becomes beachfront property, then we'll know yeah. what happened. Um, but that, yeah. you know, Jamie brought up, you know, the Midwest, and that was actually the question I was going to ask was, you know, given that they weren't so earthquake-focused, and for a long time they didn't even know that fault was there, what's their construction like in that? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's actually one of the, the things that um, – my uh, our, the director of our uh, network coordination office, um, uh, Dr. Julio Ramirez from Purdue, is, is he's on a crusade <laughs> around uh, you know places like Lafayette, Indiana, where he used to live. Of you know, we need to take seismic retrofits seriously uh, because we're overdue, and and when and when it happens, we'll be a you know those those folks will be affected. So uh, there's definitely people talking about it, uh, but you know, sim- similarly to um, the the situation in Turkey is just oh, we've got lots of different uh, concerns for where to put our our money and you know uh, though it will happen eventually we got a lot of other things that are staring us in the face that we need to spend our money on exactly oh boy yeah we just had an interesting conversation with a, a couple of docs from two different NGOs which is mine uh, you know talking about that very thing and, you know, trying to get, I mean, this, this is a secondary mission now, since we've already been working with Ukraine on medical supplies and stuff. And, you know, now we're trying to help and, and they're coming in, fortunately, Jamie, since yesterday, um, there's been some good things coming as far as we, you know, getting stuff over to Turkey, we just got to figure out how to get it there. So, you know, that's a good thing. Um, questions, Jamie? No, I think this has been fascinating. I'm really excited to get these documents linked in the show notes and sent uh, made available for people to download um, and and get access to, as well as just re-educating them about everything that Neri does. Um because uh, this is important work, and it's exciting to hear that there's a, a network of, of similarly-minded scientists around the world working together on these things, um, because I certainly don't believe in any, any way that the United States has a, a lock on that type of knowledge, education, and, and resources, that it's good to hear that we're sharing the information and, and helping each other with our structural engineering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been really amazing to see you know, people from from all over the all over the world, uh, you know, coming together and, and using the resources uh, that we've got. I mean, you know, the two reports that you mentioned, I mean, they're from a university in in Beijing. It's it's, it's great to see, uh, you know, members of of the community over there, uh, you know, sharing the data that they've gathered, the analysis they've done, 
uh, really, really well thought out, uh, well thought through, uh, design, you know, analysis there, and and from uh, the University of China that we get to uh, to post in our our data set and, and make available to, to folks here in the U.S. Well, the cool thing is all the data that you guys gather and all the things that you learn um, are going to benefit everybody in the future because there's always mm -hmm. something new, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, there sure is. There's there's no shortage of uh, of hazards facing us and and our built environment. So uh, you know that the hazard engineering community has definitely uh, got, jo got job security for a good long time. Well, Jamie, that's what we were talking about. You know, the other night was um, every disaster is different, and we learn something new every time. And hopefully, that something new is going to benefit us, benefit us in the future, right? Absolutely. And I, um, you know, I want to make sure that we take a quick moment to just thank um, Paragon Medical Education Group, which is our sponsor for the Disaster Podcast. It makes it available and possible for us to get on here on a regular basis and bring folks like Dan in to talk about the research they're doing and uh, the information that's available for everybody to pull together. So thanks for that. Um, Dr. Joe and the rest of the team at Paragon can be found over at paragonmedicalgroup.com. There are also links to them at disasterpodcast.com, and you can always find Dr. Joe and others in our Facebook group as well for the Disaster Podcast. And, um, you know, look them up for your next time you're trying to put together a unique training scenario. I think you will find that it is unique and experience-based and unlike anything you've ever put together before for your re, um, disaster response community in your jurisdiction. So take care of that. Um, Dan, give us a quick rundown on where people can find out more about what Nary's up to and more about um, the research that's going on all the time there. Yeah, uh, website is uh, designsafe-ci.org. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Nary Design Safe. Uh, you can find us on Instagram at the same handle, Nary Design Safe. Uh, and we also have our own podcast called Design Safe Radio. That's pretty fantastic and it's got a great sounding voice for the host. It might be. Um, so we, uh, we try and make uh, the, the really uh, technical work of scientists and engineers in the natural hazards community uh, intelligible for normal folks <laughs> and uh, do, do the translation work of, uh, of some of the really hardcore science and, and fantastic engineering that's going on and, and help people understand uh, the value of what, uh, what NERI does and the impact that it has on, on people's everyday uh, experience of their built environment. And just to let you know, NERI is spelled N-H-E-R-I. That's National Hazards yes, Engineering Research you. Infrastructure. Um, and uh, so uh, N-H-E-R-I is is how you spell NERI. Um, if you need, to, if you just Google that, you'll actually get to des the Design Safe site as well. That's how I get there. I can never remember Design Safe, but I can remember NERI. So, um, Dan, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. As always, guys, it's a pleasure. Sam, where can folks find you? Well, in the social media places under Sam Bradley, Sam Bradley 11, certainly in our Facebook group or on disasterpodcast.com. What about you, Jamie? 
I'm available under the handle PodMedic in most social media locations out there. Uh, I, I urge you to check me out and uh, find out what I've been up to recently anywhere you'd like. Um, it's always great to chat with folks. And, of course, I'm over at DisasterPodcast.com. Don't forget you can subscribe to the show. Any of the podcast episode pages right there below the audio player, there are links to subscribe using your favorite mobile device operating system or even by email and that way you can make sure you get every episode as soon as it comes out um good good episode sam i'm glad dan reached out to us well i knew it was coming i mean let's face it if something (laughs) falls down we're going to be hearing from dan and he'll already have a whole host of data and interesting things to tell us about. So. If a building falls in a foreign country and you don't hear from me, <laughs> does it actually fall, make a sound? <laughs> exactly. I love that. But, you know, everybody thinks, well, these worst-case scenarios can't happen to me. But look at how many worst-case scenarios we've had in the last couple of years. So be prepared, people. <laughs>